Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 10th, 2023. Not too many Fridays left in the year, but if it's Friday, it must be that was the week. My regular weekly show with Keith Tier from Palo Alto uh, on events in tech. This week, it didn't seem to me a particularly dramatic week, but Keith seems to think in the newsletter that it represents um, uh, this week, and I'm quoting him here, world-changing technologies, Keith. What's happening this week? What's so dramatic about the week of uh, November 10th, 2023? Why would we look back at this and think, that's when the world changed. I think, broadly speaking, it, it this will be the day, similar to the day the iPhone came out, this week will be the day uh, that you can mark the change of software user interfaces from keyboards typed into web pages to what ChatGPT launched this week, which is uh, conversational AI on any topic you can imagine leading to the possibility of intelligence um, at a very granular level uh, uh, for everything that the human race knows about. Wow. That, that, and, you, and you're, um, I'm not usually impressed, but uh, explain. So, so what exactly did ChatGPT bring out? What did OpenAI bring out this week to trigger this yeah. change? Well, the, the first thing is they what they didn't do. They didn't upgrade their chat GPT-4 model. It's the same model. Um, what they did is they launched the ability uh, to do two things. Firstly, they integrated um, images, text, and computational power into a single uh, chat interface, whereas before you had to do either images or you had to do text uh, or you had to run programs. Now you can do all of the above in a single interface, and it will figure out what it needs to use to deliver against whatever your goals are. So it's a much more fully formed um, equivalent of a human being. It can deal with all kind, of, all media and all computational power in a single interface. That would be really cool, this thing. Say it again. What is it? Chat GPT four five. Six. It's Chat GPT four, but with a new level of capability. Um, and 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 then the second and probably more significant thing is they've they've made it possible for you and me to create our own GPTs based on that functionality for any topic that we are able to train it in. So, for example, this morning I made. Um, a signal rank AI version. I gave it some data from signal rank, uh, trained it, and it can now answer questions about signal rank and the data in venture capital um, uh, without me having to be present. And, it, and it's as, it's cleverer than I am at pulling together the appropriate information for whatever the questioner is asking, including charts and tables. I've never heard you acknowledge anything's cleverer than you are, Keith. <laughs> yeah, my wife is way cleverer than me. Mm, right. You have to say that. Jeanne's uh, under the table there. <laughs> so you, you say in, in the newsletter that 
um, uh, and I'm quoting in you, this is how you're describing it, a, a newly scalable architecture that opens opens up the possibility for anybody to have their own ch uh, GPT. Developers will be able to both build enterprise and consumer GPT applications, often with no code required. So is this just basically offering the, the OpenAI API to anybody, or, or am I thinking about it wrong? Um, indirectly, you're right, but there's no need to understand what an API is. They, they give you a, a chat interface for building your own GPT. So you'll go into the chat and you'll just use English and you'll say, build me a GPT for Mediterranean recipes. And it will start figuring out how to do that, pulling in everything it knows. And then it'll say, um, you know, specialize in um, Italian-based meals from Milan. And it will then do that. And you'll go through whatever questions and answers you want. And at the end, it, it'll say, okay, I now have a GPT just for that topic. What do you want to call it? And you'll say, Andrew's Italian cookbook. So why I take it's an interesting idea, but why is that better than me just going to the generic chat GPT and asking it about Italian cookbooks? From the point of view of the end user, it may not be better. Uh, I, I suspect it will be a little bit better because it'd be specialized. But let's assume for a second it, it's just the same. What is different is that chat GPT has now recruited millions of developers and non-developers to build specialisms based on their preoccupations that the chat GPT employees could never scale to build. So you're going to go from, I don't know how many employees they have. Let's assume they have about a thousand employees. You're going to go from a thousand employees and what they can do to millions of people and what they can do. And it starts today. I mean, I built one this morning in, in 10 minutes. I already had the data that I What needed. you have to do is, so anyone, a developer or an end user, brings their own data to this. So you bring your, you bring, um, you, you bring uh, your uh, signal rank data, which they don't have, to it to give it more intelligence. Is that right? Yeah. So, the, so for example, this morning, I'll just use the, my example. That somebody had already built something called Venture AI, and I, I used uh, theirs, and um, it was just using Crunchbase and news as a source of intelligence. So it was fairly limited with what it could do, and most of what it told me I already knew because I can read the news as well. So then I did my own one where I uploaded some Excel files with actual data in and uh, told it, to build a venture AI using this data. And it was already a million times better than the, the, than the generic one that I used earlier. So yes, you, it, it can use web data or you can upload your own specialist data. So let's say you're the Khan Academy and you have math classes in uh, logarithmic algebra. You could teach it from your data, everything to do with lo logarithmic algebra and it would, within less than a day, you'd have the world's best teacher for that topic. So the implications of that for how human beings learn is massive. I mean, I mean, just think of the impact of this on schools and colleges and infrastructure. 
that you would no longer need. Yeah, although we can look at the dark side, it's quite corruptible as well. Is this equivalent to the way in which, for example, Google transformed the entire internet into a a vehicle for its own advertising? It switched from a search engine page to being everywhere. Is this conceptually the similar sort of thing that OpenAI is trying to do here? I think it's not. I think it's different. Um, here's how it's different. Uh, oh, if, let's take the total amount of money spent on education in the world today, which would be in the trillions of dollars. And let's imagine that you could do a better job of education using AI. The cost of the AI would be massively less than the cost of education. Uh, I'll just use my example. I, I spent $75,000 a year sending my oldest kid to college. I, I would only have to pay ChatGPT a fraction of that for an equally good education. Well, theoretically, but they wouldn't go to college. You wouldn't meet people. I mean, that's an old argument. No, well, no but I, actually, I'm focused on your question, which is the economics of this. Basically, ChatGPT will shrink the amount needed for humans to learn um, and, and deliver it for way less money. And, and they will, they'll get paid from subscriptions, just like a university gets paid from fees, but they'll be way less. So the net plus for the human race, assuming this all plays out, uh, ignoring all of the scary stuff around the outside that you might be concerned about, let's just assume they can do it. It's a huge win for the human race. Well, I'm not so... Firstly, I don't think... I don't really understand how it works. So let's take your son's school, Syracuse University, where your oldest son went. Why would, why would Syracuse University cannibalize its, its $75,000 a year students to create this platform? Well, that's the innovator's dilemma, the Christensen thing. The answer is they won't. Somebody else will. Yeah, well, we've that heard this before with... Khan Academy and online learning, and it never works out. Actually, they did both work out massively. But the universities are still even more exclusive, and schmucks like you and I still spend hundreds of thousands of dollars sending our kids to college. Well, that that I think that is because we live in a status-driven world where we believe that that's still important. But that, that world is... Th this week marks the beginning of the end of that world. I guarantee it. I mean, there's no... I got the time. This week... Marks the beginning of the end of, of that what world. world. Of what world? The world in which uh, the label of which college you went to is des is a, is a is a form of status. Well, this could we say this week marks the beginning of the end of the pre the pre AI, AI world. Age. The pre AI age. Uh, Alexander in the chat asked here: Do you export or embed these separate GPTs? Uh, thanks for the question, Alexander. But the the answer is no. It's just a URL. So um, let me ask the question in terms of OpenAI. Um, OpenAI doesn't know everything about what you know a lot about, which is data associated with startups that you've aggregated at SignalRank. When you build, they're not APIs, when you build your own version of chat, of, of GPT, Will they have access to that signal rank data? In other words, no. Is it no. arguable that they're cannibalizing their own value? 
No, they're, they're not because um, a user who uses my GPT is paying them $20 a month. Yeah, but then they don't, the, the data is more valuable than $20 a month. So they're not going to know everything about signal rank. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the truth is I get to decide what data I give it and I'm not giving it my most valuable data. I'm giving it enough data to be the best venture analyst in the world, but not my predictive data, my proprietary deal data, which is where I make my money. So I'm, I'm using it to give people enough in knowledge and intelligence that they understand about venture capital, but I'm not giving it so much that I put myself out of business and, and, and no one else has that proprietary data. That's my that's my value. And you and you're particularly sophisticated. But won't this only compound what social media and the internet's generally done is create a lot of free trash? Because they're bound to come out with free versions where they get your data in return. But they're not. I don't think they are. I I I think they're pretty consciously on a mission to not 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 to they're not going to become an advertising platform. They're just not. So they're well, they not money. They have the data in return. They might say to you, "Well, you pay me twenty dollars a month if you want to keep the data for yourself, but if if you give us all your intelligent data from uh, from all your Series A and B uh, investigations at Signal Rank, then we'll give it to you for free." But but I think they understand that their reputation relies on them not doing that. That you know if. There's probably a billion likely payers on the planet at $20 a month. I mean, $20 billion a month would make them the biggest company in the world and then some. Well, perhaps, although it's it's still, I have to admit, it's still hard to understand exactly what this is and, and why it would be better to do this than just use their broad platform. I, I would say their broad platform will be nowhere near as intelligent. Like if you go to their broad platform and ask about the kind of questions you can ask the signal rank AI I built, it wouldn't have good answers and you'd immediately think it was rubbish. If you ask the signal rank one, it, it's super knowledgeable. And, and so it's to their credit that they understand that in order to get really good intelligence, you have to allow third parties to build intelligent versions of their knowledge base. And, 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 and you know, that's really forward thinking. It, it's, it's very different to Google, which is highly centralized. This is highly decentralized, but with some central resources being applied to it. And from a personal point of view, presumably it will allow individuals to pour their own personal data into this thing and create really much more personalized, accurately personalized GPT. I'll tell you what I'll do, Andrew, Be before our next um, session. Which is in two weeks. I, I will build a that was the week GPT and give it all of the stuff we've written and uh, recorded. And we'll we can do a live demo of how much it knows about that that was the weak universe. So I should do one for Keen On. How would it help me if I poured every interview? I've got almost 2,000 interviews now on Keen On. 
it, it would help you by uh, creating an interface for anyone interested to ask about any of the authors you've ever interviewed and what they wrote about and how they answered various questions. Wow. Well, it may be a historic week, according to Keith, it is. This week marks the beginning of the end of the pre-AI age. Uh, but other stuff happened as well, Keith. Um, what other? We've got lots of other headlines. Um, tech is going to get much bigger. Uh, I guess yeah. that's connected. That was an interesting essay by uh, Packy McCormick, who you like. Uh, it it's really the essay of the week, actually. I mean, there are many essays of the week this week, but I put that one first because it stands out. Um, he, you know, we all we we all use this phrase "big tech," and, yeah. and uh, we think of Apple and Google and so on, Amazon. He is making the point that these are small companies compared to what's going to happen next, and 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 he really is amplifying what we've just been talking about, which is what will be the impact of AI on the economy um, and, and what kind of companies are going to be built and how fast and how big. And he's making the point that, you know, it's like uh, that uh, old song, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, Canadian band. I forgot what their name is now. Um, and and uh, uh, my brain is now trying to remember the name of the band. Yeah, I, me too. No, I... Uh, I won't be able to, so I should stop. But 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 yeah, it, and it's a longish, thoughtful, uh, detailed exposition on why tech is about to get much bigger, and and in the middle of a venture collapse. That yeah, and then that's the other thing that's interesting because you you've been taught you've been, and I have to give you credit. You've been saying this for a while now that tech is going to get much bigger. A few weeks ago, you talked about OpenAI in five years being being the most powerful company in the world, being wor worth trillions of dollars. You've also, and this is part of what you're doing at Signal Rank, you've been charting what one of your articles this week talks about, the death of venture capital. How are they connected? On the one hand, we're going to have bigger and bigger tech companies. On the other hand, the end, perhaps, or certainly a, a, a radical transform transformation of the venture capital industry. Are these parallel or are they interrelated they are interrelated and parallel um uh so think about venture capital at the end of the day venture capital is about making a decision to put money into a company so ai is an aid to decision making um how big an aid is a function of each individual's predilection so in the case of single rank, we are we use data only. There's no human oversight or override on an investment decision. Um, whereas Kyle Harrison, who, who wrote that piece, and he's spectacularly good recently in in, in uh, what he's writing, um, he he would he would uh, be in that world where individuals are still making a big part of the decisions. Now, what, what is going to happen, and I think most venture capitalists don't yet realize this, is that their personal role is going to shrink. It's going to become less and less as data intelligence guides good decision-making. Um, in most cases, it won't go to zero because of the personalities of the individuals concerned, but eventually uh, it will. And, and that, that's the path where um, any given discipline venture capital is only one, 
is enhanced by the use of data and intelligence to make it better. And, and some people consider that scary. In the case of venture capital, it's almost a crime against religion to even suggest that data might be able to uh, improve an individual venture capitalist decision-making because there's a lot of arrogance that they know best. But, it, it, you know, they're wrong. It will. And, and uh, Well, it, how will that change the signal? Because you're... Your signal, uh, you, you're, you, you've got feet on both sides of this. On the one hand, you obviously rely on the data in terms of signal rank as an AI platform for determining success. But on the other hand, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't the whole point of signal rank to determine the best VCs and weight it accordingly? But in this future data utopia or dystopia, however you want to describe it, they're all going to be the same because they're all going to be working off the same data. So what will happen to your own particular way of determining investment reliability? How will you determine other people's investments when the data is doing it for them? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is I think due, due to the nature of venture capital, we're many years away from that dilemma because these individuals will cling on for dear life as long as they possibly can. Yeah, you're suggesting they're all kind of losers anyway. So they're the ones who are going to die, probably not the ones you're going to well, want to recommend anyway. Well, the venture asset class is 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 exemplified by being full of losers. I mean, the, the game of venture capital is a game of losing until you win. It's like gambling. Uh, the power law that we've talked about on this show, um, you know, it's interesting. Yesterday, data came out that said only 1% of funds find a power law company. So not only is it true that less than 1% of companies have this power law growth characteristics, it's also true that only 1% of investors ever find one. So by definition, 99% of investors are failures. So that is true. And single rank extracts data that finds the best investors and within their decision-making, the best companies, because it doesn't trust, we don't trust any single investor. So we're looking at scoring across investors. And so we basically find the best within the best. And, and, and it works. So when um, is this going to filter down to everything, Keith? I mean, I know it's a kind of taking it to this ludicrous extension, but you're suggesting that venture capital for example or investment will be determined by data what about startups and entrepreneurs at what point does everything depend on data then no one's even going to trust a human being with a startup idea because it, it's not rooted in ai I, when I, some smart young kid has an instinct are people just going to reject that i i think it's it's um going to be harder and harder to disambiguate whether an idea came from a human or an AI or both. Uh, I think most smart humans, as they're ideating what to do, you know, they're trying to, think about you and me, if we were brainstorming a new startup idea, what do you need? Well, you need historical context. You need a sense of what comes next in any given specialism. You need to know whether the, uh, things required to build what comes next already exist or need to be invented. If if the latter, then R and D uh, is is the first step, not building a startup, and and that is less attractive. So timing is a huge factor in what comes next, and then it's people, um, and all of those things don't go away. They'll all be required. 
but increasingly AI will help you get the historical context, get a short list of things that might come next, maybe find appropriate people using data that could be part of a founding team. And even though a human being is driving that, the extent to which the human being is answering the questions will be less and less. So I think the whole idea of a solely human decision will will there won't there will be no such thing. Oh, well, you're going to get nailed on that one, Keith. Let's see. We will determine this. You 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 cited um, Packy McCormack's piece about tech going to get much bigger, but it seems as if everyone's going to get need to get much bigger. You have an interesting piece from Variety suggesting that. Hollywood needs to create its biggest hit ever. Is this true for every industry, for entertainment, for manufacturing, for venture capital? It's only going to be the survival of the largest. It's a, increasingly a winner-take-all world. Yeah. Well, this, this is Jason Kilar, who's the CEO of Warner Media. Um, and he, he's a quite prolific writer. He was one of the founding team at Hulu yeah. uh, in the past. And he's making the point that, and this is very specific to streaming, he's making the point that um, you can't retain the subscription fees from an audience of 200 million, which is he, what he thinks you need uh, to have a good business. You can't get those people to keep paying your subscription unless you have a lot of really good content coming regularly. And he uses Netflix as the positive example of somebody that has done that. And he says that, you know, Paramount and Peacock, Comcast, uh, and all the others don't have as compelling a product as Netflix. And he, he postulates that maybe Hulu could be that if they all banded together. And he's saying unless they band together and get to that level of scale and quality, and regularity, uh, they can't compete with Netflix um, and can't make profits the way Netflix does. Apparently, Netflix is super more. The other, the others all lose money. Netflix doesn't. I think Amazon doesn't lose money either on it on its streaming. So, uh, you know, going back to Christensen and the innovators' dilemma, what you have here is an old media company with some current streaming products admitting that the legacy of the past is created a failing business that needs to learn from Netflix if it wants to succeed. Interesting. Uh, you, you suggest this week marks the beginning of the end of the pre-AI age. This week certainly marked the beginning of the end, if not the end of the end, of WeWork. What does it tell us, the collapse of WeWork? We've already talked about Sam Bankman-Free and the kind of collapse of crypto. Um, when, the, when the new begins, the old ends, is there some historic significance to the death of WeWork, Keith? Um, you know, it, it really represents the death of the era that started roughly in 2015 and ended in 2021. From the point of view of um, the preparedness of investors to underwrite large checks on capital-intensive businesses, in the case of WeWork Buildings, but what Alex Wilhelm does in this piece, which is why I published it, is, is way more interesting because it looks into the question, why did anyone ever believe that WeWork could be a profitable business? And he goes into the numbers and, and unpacks 
the unlikely scenario of that we work was a profitable business. Um, so it's really, um, uh, I think it's a very good piece of work that he wrote. It's not just a headline piece. It's a deep. Uh, but it's always uh, easy in retrospect. Back then, everyone was saying, oh, WeWork's the future, share, future sharing of work. The, today, it's AI. And this open AI model you suggest can create, turn we uh, open AI into the most valuable, powerful company in history. In retrospect, these things are always obvious. Well, one one wonders to what extent um, the 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 virus was the the COVID virus was the main uh, catalyst for failure here. Uh, Alex argues that the core business model was broken. I think you could make a counter argument. You you could say that yeah, this was a a, a very expensive business to build, and it certainly was going to make a loss for a long time. But ultimately, if people abandoned long-term office leases and replaced them with uh, desk leases, that the owner of the buildings would have created what is effectively a timeshare business at great scale. And it could possibly have uh, done what Uber has done this week. Uber's moved into, it's now being described as a cash machine, although up until this point in history, it was described as a loss-making public company. It's possible that WeWork could have gone through the same trajectory. I don't think that's impossible. I think well, I that. And Airbnb's going through a crisis this week. I mean, the one variable here, Keith, which we've talked about before, is regulation on AI. Um, you have your one of your videos of the week is from your pinup. Lena Khan, the FTC chair on AI regulation. You may poo-poo or dismiss her, but the issue of regulation isn't going to go away, particularly if you're right, and this is going to radically transform everything. I think regulation is a little bit like chasing uh, chasing a cat. You know, uh, you, uh, um, the cat's faster than you. It can jump higher, um, and, and the chances you can catch it unless it wants you to catch it are very low. Unless you're um, a big cat. You can give it a bowl of milk. Well, so. if, you, if you're a lion or a tiger, you can catch a cat. True, but let's not pretend for a second that the, F, the Lena Khan's organization... Well, the, the big tech, the, big, the, the current big AI companies are, are, are actually in some ways sympathetic to regulation. We've talked about this before because in, in some ways it might actually make them stronger. Yeah, yeah, that they are open to regulation mainly because, um, you know, I think there may be some genuine questioning about where the end game is with AI that's leading them to caution. Uh, I do detect that in what Sam Altman says. That said, I think regulating AI at this stage in its life would be like regulating the internet in 1994 before anything happened. could have been i mean we know you don't like regulation that's given you you you're, you're not shy to express that but what about the reality is is this new economy that you consider so profoundly revolutionary is it going to get regulated for better or worse you may not agree but uh, honestly I, I think what happens in the end is the state's role is less and less over time because you have self-regulating uh, ecosystems of software that have known parameters. And the main impact of regulation is going to be to force the companies to create parameters. 
And once those parameters are created, I think the role for the state is reduced more and more um, to basically collecting taxes and distributing the money to people. And not everyone even believes in taxes. So maybe the headline of the week should be, this is the week that marks the beginning of the end of the state. That would be a nice outcome because I think we all regard the state as a necessary evil. We um, all speak for yourself. I like the state. <laughs> when I when the word the state is used in my brain comes a picture of a policeman or a soldier or a tax collector. What comes in your mind? Well, those three, and I like them all. Let's move on. Uh, let's not uh, let's not turn this into politics. We're not the Gilmore Gang here. Um, by the way, there's a great article this week about uh, from. Well, I'm aware. Well, you can go. Uh, maybe you, all you wealthy libertarians in in uh, Palo Alto, I'm sure you'll be thrilled when there are no taxes, no police, and no military on the streets. I wonder what Palo Alto would be like then. Did Did you see the Steve Blank piece? He's a standard no. lecturer. So it's in the newsletter, and it's uh, opposing what Bill Gurley said a few weeks ago about regulation. It's actually pro regulation. You should read it. Okay. Well, the other thing that happened this week, which in a way is very much in sync, this has been a nice show because it all fits together. Usually it's a bit bitty. But this week also marks the first piece of AI hardware, credible AI hardware from Humane. It's an interesting company getting a lot of press, the real personal AI computer. Um, the New York Times had a big piece, Silicon Valley's big, bold sci-fi bet on the device that comes after the smartphone. It doesn't sound, Keith, that convincing, but it's interesting. It, it, it's the first shot of this new age in hardware terms, isn't it? Yeah, I, and we talked earlier that um, the, end, the end of the user interface, as we know it. Yeah. Uh, and this is the first... Um, example of that in hardware i mean it, it is just a pin a lapel based or whatever pocket based pin that you put on you and it does all the things mentioned the the idea is that it it, it um i've talked about this for a long time that apple's really good at understanding that human being can have different devices for different parts of their body like ears eyes um, and so on and the iPhone is a compromise in that sense because it, it uses your voice, your eyes, and your ears. Um, the AirPods are just for your ears. The new um, 3D thing is just for your eyes, um, mostly. And what, what these guys have done is they've created something which gets rid of the screen. So suddenly your eyes are used for the real world. And um, all of the content and the intelligence is carried around with you and you can hear it and speak to it. Um, and it, you can use Bluetooth headphones with it. And for example, it can do simultaneous translation into one language to another using voice. Um, it can do a lot of things. It's super clever. <clears throat> I do, do you remember the company General Magic? Yeah. I do think it might be a company similar to General Magic that innovates uh, to the ultimate you can innovate using current technology, but doesn't end up owning the market. That really yeah, like the first MP3 players, it took the iPod to change the market. And you have to assume that Apple is looking at this market. I mean, this is an existential threat to the Apple iPhone. 
I, I think it, it it's the first breakout of the screen from everything else. Um, uh, and, and so it's a voice-based user interface. There's no keyboard either. Uh, so it, so it, there's no screen, no keyboard. And remember, Apple is loves getting rid of things. Um, it, it, many times Apple will launch a product and said, this doesn't any longer have a, a headphone jack. Well, so, they must be very nervous that Sam Altman and Johnny Ive are working on some hardware project, a very ambitious hardware project, because if you put this device or this idea of this device together with what you talked about at first today, the chat GPT for everything and everyone, which will be personalized, this changes everything. We can't just think of humane as an iPhone on your hand. This is something profoundly revolutionary, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So why aren't you building one, Keith? Uh, Signal Rank AI is going to be a GPT by tonight. Ah. Well, you haven't got the hardware, though. I mean, is it possible that there just won't be hardware for this world? That no, there was a software world? I, I, think, I think all hardware we currently have is going to be able to access these GPTs. But the hardware we currently have isn't customized or dedicated to that. So the hardware is going to evolve. And I think what this represents is the first evolution. Um, and uh, they're going to have to be super good to not become general magic, which for those who don't know, what, you know, basically went out of business, but had easily the best uh, touch and pen interface computer concept, including voice, um, you know, many years before Apple. But Apple is vulnerable, as you know. I just got the new uh, 15, uh, the big phone, and it's 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 a beautiful product, but it's clunky and large. And if you've got this thing that you can wear on your lapel, which does the same thing, it's a no-brainer. No one's going to buy iPhone. Yeah, well, it, it's not going to do high-definition photos or video or that stuff. Um, but, but it will, but, because it'll you know, uh, put it wherever you want. It'll put it on your wall or your hand or your brain. Yeah, well, Facebook's glasses are a camera. Um, so you, you can begin to see where this ends up. Yeah, and with the Apple device is going to get us somewhere there, uh, which will be out next year. Finally, another interesting uh, X of the week, which actually touches on everything we're talking to before, uh, Jason Calacanis. Uh, uh, Next, over the next five years, founders will raise less venture capital and own a lot more equity. Jason stating the obvious, but it's often the obvious, which is the least obvious. Do you agree with him? And the response, which you also wanted from Nathan Land, strongly agree. AI is massive leverage. Small teams are going to be able to get so much more done with less capital. And this brings us back to the beginning with these uh, these GP. GPTs that we can all create and what's the point of VCs so so the core point I think is that you won't need a team anymore uh, I, I had dinner last night with um, Dave McClure who was the founder of yeah. five startups and a, and, and a group of uh, investors and one of the investors works closely with um, uh, the lean networking Eric Reese yeah and lean, lean lean startup was all about the reducing cost of the computing. Uh, 
um, even though human beings didn't become cheaper. What this is, is human beings are become, going to become unnecessary to building stuff. You're going to be able to build stuff all alone as a solopreneur, they call it. And you might be able to build unicorns without venture capital as an individual. Now, that is very likely to be true. Terrifying, Keith, or exciting? I think what it means is put your thinking cap on and build something. 